The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Um, so as Josh said, my name is Austin Burgard. I am one of the first year pastoral residents here. And uh, it's truly a joy to be with you. Um, Jake mentioned a few weeks ago that the opportunity that the residents have had to preach to go through a resonance series is uncommon. It's an uncommon one to be presented the opportunity to preach God's word as a man who's being trained for pastoral ministry. That just doesn't happen. Um, Jake alluded to that. And so I want to publicly thank Josh and Ronnie and Kevin for sharing their pulpit with us. Thank you for sharing the pulpit with the men that you were faithfully training. You are doing the global church, the universal church, a great service by allowing us to do this. Not I'm not saying that we're great preachers by any stretch of the imagination, but thank you for allowing us this opportunity. And then Emmaus, covenant members of Emmaus, I want you to know that the reason I'm here, not just behind this pulpit, not just preaching today, but the reason that I'm in Kansas City is because of you all. I had planned on going to, I'm a student at Midwestern, I had planned on going to another seminary just a year ago. Right about this time, I was planning on uh, shipping off and, and going to another seminary and really felt the Lord uh, drawing me to check out Midwestern. And so I went to school about three hours away from here. And so I drove down on a Friday and I got the tour from Sam Parkinson. And uh, I really wasn't too impressed with Midwestern, if I'm, if I'm being honest. I just wasn't. Compared to the school that I wanted to go to, I just wasn't all that impressed. And so, uh, but I, I met Sam and uh, when I was doing the tour with him, I was introduced to Ronnie Kurtz. And we got to talking about theology and, and life and what I was looking for. And, and Ronnie and Sam were like, hey, come check out Emmaus. I was like, all right, I'll come check out Emmaus. So, so that Sunday I came and I visited. Uh, it's a wet October day. And I fell in love with you all. The way that you interact with one another, the way that you came to me, introduced yourselves to me and loved me and have continued to love me and pour into me for the past eight months, it is If you're a guest, I pray and I hope that you've had that same experience today. I'm so thankful for you all. Thank you for allowing me to preach God's word to you today, and thank you for allowing me to live life with you. With that all being said, I want to pray for us again. So if you would, bow with me. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the grace that preserves us and keeps us, the grace that saves us. God, thank you for the justifying work of Christ on the cross. As Josh said, we do not need to hear a word from me, but from you. And so I ask that you would powerfully speak through your authoritative and errant word, and that you would be glorified through today's sermon, that you would help us to love you more, to go forth, and to proclaim the gospel in Parkville, in our neighborhoods, and across the globe. Father, we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my sermon today is God's Purposes in Our Suffering. And our text is Romans 5, 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn there with me now and we'll read it together. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Now, as a quick aside, I love how inexhaustible the word is. We just heard that text, the first two verses, as an assurance of pardon, and now we're going to dig into the first five verses on God's purposes in our suffering. So as an aside, let that be known that you will never exhaust the riches of God's word. But before we begin, I want to kind of give us a roadmap. I like, I'm a very logical person. I like progression and plans. I'm very type A. And so I want to just give us a roadmap for where we're going. I have two points today. That one, there are benefits to our being justified by faith. And two, that God has purpose in your suffering. And with that being said, I want to define exactly what justification is because in chapter four, Paul has put forward this this idea, this doctrine of justification has put forward Abraham. And so I won't be dealing much with justification today, excuse me, but I want to define it for us. So justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardons us from all of our sins, accepts us, and then declares us righteous based upon the perfect righteousness of Christ. I want to repeat that because that's a little bit of a longer definition. Justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardons us from all of our sins, accepts us, and then declares us righteous based upon the perfect righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? It means that God dealt with our sin in a just and right way because the just penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us that. And Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death and he rises in a perfect resurrection. And by faith in those things, his perfect righteousness is imputed. It's given to you, so much so that you are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, so that when God looks at you, believer, he sees you as one who's holy and blameless before him. You are holy and blameless because of faith in the perfect righteousness of Christ, because of Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. And with that being said, I want to reread the first two verses for us and then hop into my first point. Paul says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. These two verses will serve as the basis, the foundation for my first point, which is that there are benefits to our being justified by faith. And the first benefit that Paul tells us is given to us through justification is peace. Now, before Jesus died, we were at war with God. There's enmity between us and God. And it isn't simply that we're rebelling against God or indifferent to God, but God is actively against us. Romans 3 says, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. And because of our inability to follow God's law and our sin, we are under God's wrath. But what Jesus does, Jesus comes and he makes peace between us and God. Jesus deflects and absorbs the hellfire missile of God's sin-seeking wrath that was locked onto you and to me by becoming the target for us. And when that missile's smoke is dissipated, when it clears, 
What we have is an unbreakable peace treaty between us and God, signed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything is about Jesus. Everything hinges upon Christ. Now, this peace that Paul is talking about isn't a feeling of serenity and peace. You know, people will talk about, I don't, I don't feel peace about that, or I, I don't really feel good about that, or this. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a standing where we were once sons and daughters of wrath, as Ephesians 2, 3 states. Now we are sons and daughters of peace and love and joy and hope, where we were once haters and insolent opponents of God who were dead in our trespasses and sins. God made alive. He made us alive with Christ and he seated us in the heavenly places with him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named so that we rule with Christ. God made peace between us and him. It is an eternal standing before you and God that cannot be taken away. Now listen, if you are an unbeliever, this does not apply to you. Because of your sin, there is no peace for you. God's wrath still burns against you. Believers have God as a good and loving father. You have him as a righteous judge. The believer's sin was judged at the cross on Christ. Yours will be at the day of judgment. But do not harden your heart. Unbeliever, do not harden your heart. There is still time for you to repent, to turn away from your sinful life, and turn to Christ, to turn to him. Colossians 1.20 states that God, through Jesus Christ, made peace by the blood of his cross. So I implore you, non-believer, stop storing up wrath for yourself. Let the wrath be poured out on Christ so that you might receive his perfect righteousness and the grace and the peace that is given to you through him. But until you do, until you repent, there is no peace for you. There is no grace, and you have no hope. And none of what I say today applies to you. But Christian, you have peace with the holy, just, righteous creator God. There is no more wrath for you. There is eternal peace. And we'll see why that matters so much in just a little bit. But not only do we have peace as believers, not only are we saved from God's righteous wrath, but we also have access to grace. Paul says this, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through the cross, Jesus bought for us this access to grace. Where God was once actively against us, now he is working for us. And this access to grace is something more than peace, and it's something more than justification. Grace is the sphere and the reign of God's infinite power working for us. Grace is, the, is, is what delivers us from the dominion of sin and what brings us in to eternal life. We've been given access to the king through the torn veil. When Jesus died, the veil was torn, giving us access to God. I don't think we understand the gravity of that. You have access to God. 
And this grace is not something that we just stand in. We're kept by this grace. This grace is what preserves us. And our God, our God is no miser. He's not poor. He's not poor with grace. As Ephesians 1 tells us, God is rich with grace and he lavishes it upon us. Believer, God is not sitting on his heavenly throne, hoarding his gold in his hand and just kind of in pity, tossing it out to you. As a good father, as a great king, he's lavishing it upon you. In great joy and love, he lavishes the riches of his grace upon you. Our God is not a penny-pinching God with grace. There is an infinite amount of grace for you. Grace upon grace upon grace. And if it were not for Jesus, leaving the riches of God's grace and becoming poor, we would have no access to this grace. So God, Jesus comes and he ransoms us so that we would have access to the riches of his grace. And this riches of grace, this lavish grace that's being given to us produces within us an all-satisfying joy in Christ and anticipation of his glory. Paul says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I want to touch on this just a little bit. I'm gonna, I plan on coming back to it later when we talk about God's purposes in our suffering, which is where I want to spend the majority of our time. But Paul's saying because we have peace and access to grace, we now rejoice in the glory of God. And there's two things that are going on here. One is that we actually rejoice in God. Where we were once insolent, hate, like insolent opponents and haters of God who wanted nothing to do with God, despising God, we now rejoice in the very thing we used to hate. So this grace and this peace comes and it causes us to rejoice in God in God himself. But then there's also this anticipation of the final day of judgment. Because unbelievers, they will call for mountains to fall upon them in great distress and fear. But believer, you have great cause and a great hope to rejoice in because on that day, you will be welcomed in to the presence of Christ. This rejoicing not only extends to God, but it gets practical. It's not ethereal. It's not just up here and has no bearing upon our lives. This rejoicing in God, this rejoicing in the final day, brings us to a place where we can actually rejoice in suffering. And what we need to understand is that we don't come to God to get peace. We do, but we don't, right? Peace isn't our main goal. God is our goal. We come to God to get God. You don't come to God to get his stuff. You come to God to get God. So you, your joy would be filled, you'd be satisfied in God. You know God wants you to be satisfied in him? He wants you to take joy in him? There's so much joy in God. That's what he wants for you. So you don't come to God to get this stuff. This is great. Justification and peace and access to grace is great. It's wonderful. But God is great. We come to God to get God. Which brings me to my second point, which is that God has purpose in our suffering. 
For some of us, this is going to be really hard to understand. And because of that, I want to show us, before I dive into what Paul says, is I want to establish two things. One, God is sovereign over suffering. He's sovereign over your suffering. And two, that rejoicing and suffering is not unique to Paul. My point is to prove from the Bible that what I'm saying, what, what, my point is to prove that what I'm saying is coming from the Bible and not just me. I'm not trying to advance any sort of belief other than what Scripture is saying. And so I'm going to be hopping, a lot, hopping around a lot in a ton of different Scriptures. And so I don't expect you to turn with me to all of them. But I would encourage you to go back, listen to this sermon, and study the Scriptures for yourself so you can understand. The common thought in the Christian life is that good things come from God and evil things come from Satan. There's a kernel of truth in that. But if God is sovereign, and he is, he is sovereign, then ultimately all things come from him. And I have three examples for you. The suffering of Job, the suffering of Joseph, and the sufferings of Christ. Example number one, the the suffering of Job. I don't plan on going into all the intricacies of Job's story I'm actually just going to hang out in the first two two chapters. But what happens in the story of Job is that Job is a righteous man before God, and God and Satan meet together in in the heavenly realm, and God asks Satan, Satan, where have you been? Satan says, going to and fro on the earth. And now what I'm assuming what he means by that, because God then puts forward Job, is that Satan is seeking someone to devour. First Peter says that Satan is a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Satan is going to and fro on the earth, seeking someone to devour. He's seeking, your, he's seeking faith to devour. And so what happens, God puts forward Job, and, and in effect, Satan laughs. It's like, the only reason Job believes in you is because you've given him good things. He says you've hedged him in. And Satan incites God and says, take it all away. So it's like, God's like, okay. I'm going to take it away. He takes it away. What happens? Job's integrity holds. He does not curse God. Satan and and God meet up again, and the same conversation happens. Satan says this time, skin for skin, all that a man has, he he will curse you if you take his livelihood. And so God does. But you might say to me, you've just proven yourself wrong. Satan did all those things. Satan was responsible for all those things. But if you read the text, I want to show you what Job says and how Job understands his suffering. In chapter 1, verse 21, Job says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So that's in reference to God taking away all that he had given him. Do you not know that God has the right to take your life away. He gave you the very breath that you're breathing right now. He has the right to take it away. He has the right to take everything that you have away because you didn't earn it. God gave it to you. In chapter 2, verse 10, Job says this, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? This is in response to being struck with loathsome sores where Job broke off pottery and scraped himself clean. 
Do you see how Job understood his suffering? He attributed it to God. So while this suffering came at the heckling of Satan, it ultimately came from God. And now I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but what we see is that even in his suffering, in the worst kind of suffering, his livelihood is taken away. His kids are killed. Everything is taken away. And what does Job say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. So where Paul says rejoice in suffering, Job says it too. And I'll get into that a little bit. But maybe the story of Job is unique. I want to show you from the life of Joseph that this isn't the case. So Joseph was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, and then he was wrongfully accused of coming on to Potiphar's wife, and then he's thrown in prison and forgotten in prison. And he, he rises to the, he's released from prison. He's, he rises to the ranks uh, within Pharaoh's government, becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. But jo, or, excuse me, Joseph had every reason to complain in his suffering. And there's a famine that comes, and, and Joseph is in charge of the grain and handing out the grain, and his brothers come before him. They don't know that it's him. There's a long trail of events that happens, but eventually Joseph reveals himself to them. And when they, when they come across this, when they see this, they think that jo, or Joseph is going to condemn them. He thinks that he's going to be wrathful. But what Joseph does is he forgives them. He goes to them, he hugs them, and he cries upon their shoulder. And he lets them know this. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says this, As for you, his brothers, you meant evil against me, selling me into slavery. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So as we see from Joseph, God has a divine purpose in suffering. Now, don't misinterpret Genesis 50, verse 20. God planned this. It wasn't as if his, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery and then God was like, oh no, what am I going to do? I'm going to turn this into good. Now, look, God is an all-knowing God. He's all-powerful. He has a plan from eternity past to eternity future. God is all-knowing. He's not unknowing. To say that he's unknowing and then reacts to our actions is heresy. To say that God doesn't know what's going to happen and then just reacts to whatever we do is heresy. It's wrong. So we see that Joseph understood his suffering to be in the hands of God. And one final example is the death of Christ. In Acts 2, once the Spirit descends upon the people of God, Peter stands up and he goes to preach his Pentecost sermon. And in his sermon, Peter states this, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And God's eternal plan of redemption was brought about by ordained suffering from eternity's past. If God is not sovereign over suffering, there is no cross. There is no resurrection. There, there's nothing. We have nothing. So we can see that God is sovereign over our suffering. And he, and he uses it for his divine and good purposes. And rejoicing in suffering isn't new or novel to Paul. 
where Paul says rejoice, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. He's not a masochist. He's not seeking to suffer. He's not going into some dangerous place saying like, here I am, come kill me, right? He's not saying beat me with whips. He's not doing that. So, but maybe Paul's just kind of crazy. So very quickly, I want to show you how three different authors, biblical authors, understand rejoicing and suffering. James, in James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.12, says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we see here that we're not to be surprised when suffering comes. And not only that, but we're to rejoice and be glad in it insomuch as it fills up Christ's sufferings. And Jesus, if you don't maybe accept the authority of James and Peter and Paul, Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I hope you can see from Scripture that God is sovereign over your suffering and over my suffering. And when you hear me call you, when you hear the Scripture call you to rejoice in suffering, please don't think I'm making light of it. I know I'm young but I've seen a lot of suffering in my life. I've seen cancer take away my dad's wife. I've witnessed my mom go through two utterly destructive divorces that intimately involved me. I've seen my father behind the glass of a jail cell. So please don't hear my pleas for your rejoicing lightly. Your suffering is real, and it hurts. And I want you to know that there is a good and sovereign God who's working it out for your good. Whatever amount of suffering you're going through, whatever it is, God is good. He's working it out for your good. So please don't hear me call you to do that lightly. And so if our suffering is for our good, what does our text say about God's purposes in our suffering? First thing is that suffering is meant to produce endurance in us. Paul says suffering produces endurance. And as I studied this passage and, and thought of a way to explain it, I came across something John Piper said, and I honestly couldn't come up with a better way to explain what endurance is other than how he said it. So he states this, quote, if something happens in your life that is hard and painful and frustrating and disappointing, and by grace your faith looks to Christ and to his power and his sufficiency and his fellowship and his wisdom and his love, and you don't give in to bitterness and you don't give in to resentment and complaining, then your faith endures and perseveres. It becomes stronger. But how is it stronger? It's stronger the way tempered steel is stronger. It takes more to break it. Suffering is like the fire that tempers the steel of faith. So when Paul says suffering brings about endurance, he means that the fiery tests of trouble are meant by God to make your faith unbreakable. In suffering, God means to make your faith unbreakable. But this seems counterintuitive in our minds, right? Suffering is anti Perseverance, it's anti-strength. If you want me to persevere, you put me in a nice comfy room with a, a book and you leave me alone. Like, that's how I'm gonna persevere, but not in God's economy. God means to give us no hope but himself in suffering. He means to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith in him, not in other things. 
Generally in suffering, things are taken from us. Things that we put our hope in. And God comes through suffering. He removes that and he gives us himself. That's why we come to God to get God and not his stuff. And we like steel, when we go through the furnace of suffering, we come at the other side stronger. And, we, and when we go through fire, when things go through fire, it purifies them, right? So when, when steel goes through fire, it purifies it and reveals all the impurities. So this is what Paul means when he says, and endurance produces character. So when we go through the fire of suffering, what God means to do is show us the genuineness of our faith, the realness of it. What God means to do in our suffering is is prove our integrity and sift the wheat from the chaff. In testing us through fire of suffering, God means to give us an assurance of our faith. Think of Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He gives four seeds and four soils, and he puts forth the second one, and the second one, when trials and persecutions come on account of the word, it falls away. And the fourth one is sown in good soil, and it perseveres. And so that's what God is is doing in our suffering. Are we second soil people? Are we fourth soil people? Think of a newly minted military crew who's sent to the front lines of battle. He like charges in to battle, excited to execute his training. But when bombs come falling, he runs. He runs and he hides behind the bunker. But who does he find behind his bunker? He finds his captain, the very man leading him in the battle. But his captain is unshaken. Right? He's seen these kinds of attacks before. And so it is with us. This is what suffering means to do in us. Those, when, when suffering comes, those who aren't real are going to run away. They're not going to run to the bunker. They're going to run somewhere else. And what, what we do is we run to the bunker of God. That's how the psalmists speak of God in the psalms. God is their rock and their shield, and their strong tower, and their fortress. And so that's what we must do. If our faith is to be proven real, we must run to God in suffering, not away from him. We must run to him. Don't run from God in your suffering. He's meaning it for your good. It might not feel like it. We might not understand it. But if the word is true, he is. So we must run to the bunker of God. And in that bunker, we will find an eternal hope, which is what Paul says next. He says, and character produces hope. God purposes our suffering so that our hope might increase. Remember I said earlier that there's two things going on here. Remember, we don't come to God to get his stuff. We come to God to get God. And so through suffering, He removes all the hopes and gives us the only hope that will ever stand himself. God is the only hope that we could ever have and ever want and ever need. Some of us don't really understand biblical hope. We we kind of import our meaning of the word hope into the Bible. But when the Bible speaks about hope, it's talking about certainty because Hope is something promised by God, and God is faithful to bring it about, to bring it to pass. And so when we use the word hope, think of utter certainty. We use the word hope to say, well, I hope my spouse comes home early. You parents, I hope my children follow Christ. Those things aren't guaranteed, right? 
But when Paul speaks about hope, when you see the Bible speak about hope, look at that and know that that is for certain. It's going to come to pass. And let's go back to verse 2 where Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Suffering is meant to intensify our spiritual taste buds for God. If God takes away all hope but himself, and he gives us nothing but himself, what he means to do is cause us to rejoice in him. It means to deepen our longing for him and nothing else. This is what Paul speaks about character producing. It's pointing back to what he said earlier and rejoicing in the glory of God. There are believers right now in the world who are suffering physically. They're being slaughtered, persecuted, and oppressed. There are Christian women in this world right now, as we sit here in these chairs, who are being raped by pagan men in hopes that they will recant their faith in Christ. I admit that that is a graphic image. I don't, make the, I don't, I don't bring that up to make you feel guilty about your lack of physical suffering for Christ. I guarantee you I have never suffered physically for the cause of Christ. But all suffering in our lives is meant to produce the things I've talked about. My point is this. These brothers and sisters in the world aren't asking Jesus to come back later. They're not asking Jesus to just hold off another year. Right? If we're all honest with ourselves, there's at least one or two things in our life that we're just kind of hoping will happen before Jesus comes back. Single people, I hope I get married. Married people without children, I hope I want to have kids, or I want to get a promotion at work. I want to get this. But what suffering means to produce in us is a deeper longing for God himself so that all these things vanish. That We don't want these things. So these believers who are being persecuted aren't longing for worldly things because they don't have them. Their only hope is Christ. Their only joy and satisfaction is in Christ. Do you think the woman being raped for her faith in Christ is longing for him, for longing just for another day? No, she wants Jesus. She's longing for eternity with Christ. They're crying out, these persecuted believers, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's what God means to do for us in our suffering. He means to deepen our desire for him. He means to deepen our joy in him as we come to grips that he is better and we're suffering for because we get him. Paul says that this hope won't put us to shame. Why? Because through ordained suffering, we have been shown to be authentic Christians. And when the end comes, our hope in him will not be mocked, but rather applauded as we are welcomed into his presence with well done, good and faithful servant. Having come through the very fires of hell, we can point back and say that our hope in Christ was not built upon sand, but upon the solid rock, the only solid rock that we have. And in this, Paul says that the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. And this love is based upon the objective truths that we've, we've seen about access to grace and peace and justification. But 
This isn't, what Paul's talking about isn't a logical progression. It isn't like this. All right, think of a, a math equation. So John 3.16, God loves the world. For God so loved the world. Okay, well, plus me, I'm in the world, so God loves me. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about in the midst of suffering, a very, in, in a sense, illogical and unexplainable pouring of God's love into our hearts. It's not something we can explain. It is an experience of the Holy Spirit, not wrought by our flesh, but wrought by the Spirit of God. So what does all this have to do with us? How can we apply having justifi- being justified and having peace and grace and what God means to do in our suffering? What do we do with that? I have three ways we can do that. Point one, don't beat yourself up when you fail but do seek to kill sin. Because we have been justified by faith, because we stand before God as sons and daughters of peace and not wrath, we've been forgiven of all of our sin. Christian, all of your sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven. It was dealt with at the cross. But that doesn't give you the reins to continue to pursue sin. And I think that when we sin, when we fail in a major way, whatever that is for each one of us, we all have a sin that we have kind of elevated above all others, and it's like, if I do that, I'm done for. If I I don't do that, I'm doing well. And and there's two kinds of of pride and unbelief that we fall into when when we fail in this major way. We we either fall into license, and we, we take liberty, and we continue to indulge our sin, or we fall into despondency and shame and condemnation. Both are forms of unbelief. We're not believing the gospel. And I think what we tend to do here at Emmaus and myself is we fall into this category, despondency and shame and guilt and heaping on ourselves condemnation. We have a tendency to beat ourselves with spiritual whips. We think that we have to clean ourselves up We think that God's wrath remains on us. It doesn't. There's no more condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, stop trying to atone for your own sin. You must take your sin seriously, but also take the gospel seriously. Take your sin seriously. Make war on your sin. Seek to kill sin, but don't give in to despondency and shame and guilt and condemnation when the gospel says that you are forgiven. You are loved. God is not condemning you. Just come to him. But how do we kill sin? This is something I've wrestled with for a long time. How do we we kill sin? We kill sin with superior pleasure in Jesus Christ. Take Psalm 84 as an example. The psalmist says that one day in your house is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Do you see what he's saying? He doesn't want to dwell with the wicked because it's wicked, right? He's not not looking at the wicked and saying, well, that's bad, I don't wanna go there. No, he comes over here and he says, This is better to be just one day. One day in the house of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. To emphasize the wickedness of sin is insufficient to kill it. 
I could stand up here and tell you a ton of statistics about the horrors of pornography, but statistics don't kill sin. Superior pleasure and joy and satisfaction in Jesus do. That's how you kill sin. So when you are tempted to sin and to fall into despondency and shame, you look to the gospel, you look to Jesus and know that he is better. You believe that he is better. That is how we live by faith. We live by faith by trusting everything that God has promised to be for us in Jesus. That is how we kill sin, church. We must fight sin. We must take our sin seriously. But you are also forgiven. Point of application number two. Resist the lies of Satan when suffering comes. When suffering comes, and it's going to come, Christian. It is going to come. Satan is also going to come with it. Satan is going to come, and he's going to try to feed you his damnable lies. In Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter that that Satan demanded to have him, that he might sift him with wheat, or like wheat, excuse me. And, and we saw earlier in the story of Job that Satan is going to and fro on the earth seeking someone to devour. What is Satan trying to devour? When he feeds you his lies in the midst of suffering, what is he trying to devour? Satan eats faith. He's trying to put you through the strainer, put you through it. You come out on the bottom and your faith remains up here. So what do you do? When, what do you do when, when Satan is coming against you in the midst of suffering and he's telling you lies? We do what we do when we try to kill sin. We hold fast to the word of God. I want to give you three just very quick verses and to, to cling to in the midst of those lies. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is condemning you. The reason you're suffering is because you're condemned. No, I'm not. You hold fast to Romans 8, 1, Christian. Hold fast to it. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Your suffering is not for your good. It means nothing. Yes, it does. This verse says it. Romans 8, 28 says, my suffering is for my good. And finally, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It would be far better to stay in the world. You can make a name for yourself. You can be comfortable. There's much glory here in the world for you. No. No, there's not. This suffering is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Church, there's, there are many more verses I could take you to, but I want to encourage you to look into the study the word of God. Write the word of God on your heart. Memorize it. Cling to it in the, in the midst of suffering. Make God's word your bunker mediated through prayer. If you want to change your life and rejoice in suffering, live by faith in the word of God. And finally, my last point, is that we suffer for those who will suffer for eternity if we do not go to them. I'll say that again. We suffer for those who will suffer for eternity if we do not go to them. In 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Paul says this, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, 
and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. A couple weeks ago, I went home to St. Louis and I heard this verse preached on and it woke me up. I, hadn't, I don't think I had ever read this verse before and it has stuck with me for the past three weeks. I say this to your shame, Paul says. There are some who have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. Currently, there are 6,789 unreached and unengaged people groups in the world. That is 2.9 billion people who have no knowledge of God and have never heard the name of Christ. 2.9 billion people. And it's to our shame. Let that number sink in. 2.9 billion people have no knowledge of God, no access to the gospel. The reason these people are so unreached and unengaged is because they're in hostile places where you'll suffer. But the purposes and plans of God to reach the nations are paved with suffering. If we love the lost, if we want these people to know the gospel, it is going to cost us our lives and our comfort. Risk is right and dying is gain. Do we not believe with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain? So you go to the Middle East. What are they going to do to you? Kill you? You get Christ. Is that not far better? Is Jesus not better than life? Do we want to die in our religion or die in our devotion? In Revelation 6.11, John shows how, the, how, how God has determined for some of us to lose our lives. Us in this room, us in the Western church, to lose our lives for the cause of spreading the gospel among the nations. He says this in Revelation 6.11. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who will dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Now listen, until, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There is a number of martyrs that is to be complete. We see once again that God ordains suffering for His purposes. Church, we must repent of worshiping comfort. I must repent of worshiping comfort. Austin Burgard must repent of worshiping comfort. I live a nice, cushy life in my Christian circles, and I don't get outside of them. I must repent. We as a church must repent of worshiping comfort. If we want to see the nations come to know Christ, if we want to see Parkville come to know Christ, I'm pleading with you, church, to ask the question, should I go? Should I go to the nations? If we want to see them, if we want to see the nations embrace the gospel, we must go. Now, is everyone going to go to the hardest places in the world? No. But I'm pleading with you to ask if you should. Now, will all of us go? No. Not everyone is going to be a missionary. We need faithful senders and we need faithful goers. We don't need people to be disobedient. I'm convinced 
that the reason many of us don't go is because we don't want to lose our comfort. We don't want to suffer. So church, let us repent of placing our hope in comfort instead of Christ. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have these chairs or the AC on or a car that works or to live in America. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying let us repent of the spiritual complacency that we have become okay with. As there are 2.9 billion people, if they were to die right now, would all suffer for eternity in hell. And we're okay with that. I don't think we should be okay with that. If Israel bowed the knee to Baal, we have bowed the knee to comfort. So church, seek to evangelize the lost. Don't fear being reviled or mocked or scorned. Some of us will suffer in awkwardness with our neighbors. Some of us will suffer with those in Revelation 6.11. The wrath of God will cost somebody their life. It will either cost the unreached peoples their lives for eternity or it will cost us Christians our earthly lives in missionary service. If we don't learn this lesson of suffering, we may drift away from the painful pathway of love. And Emmaus, we end every week by taking communion. By eating this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you aren't a believer, we'd ask that you would remain seated and not take. It would just be another empty ritual. I may just remember that there is no extra grace to be had in the bread and in the juice. And may us remember that we worship a suffering Savior. This bread represents his body, which was broken for us, and, this, and his juice, the blood that was spilled. So come and take and remember that this meal was made through God-ordained suffering. May us come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.